that is going to be responsible for calling me out on failing to do what I said I was going to do. It's the same in a religious context. It is dangerous. Oops, I just skipped a verse. It is dangerous to start thinking of ourselves, uh, Christian, our, our Christian selves, our spiritual selves, as isolated people accountable to no one else. That is a dangerous mentality in the church, that I am separate from you, and I'm not accountable to you, and I'm not accountable to anyone else. So the question, first question we need to look at, who is accountable to who in the church? And what we see is, it is an important concept beginning and surrounding church leadership. This is a, a thing that nobody is exempt from in the church. Let's read a couple of passages. Hebrews 13, 17. Make sure I didn't skip one. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as to those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We see a chain of accountability here. Obey is not a word we like usually, is it? It's a... Uh, I know Gideon doesn't like it. But really, he's never gonna, he, that's never going to go away. He doesn't like it now. And he's not going to like it when he's a teenager. And he's not going to like it when he's 35. Because why? That means I'm accountable to somebody else. That I have to submit to. That word submit is another word we don't like. That I am accountable to them. That they are the ones that are in charge of making sure that I'm doing the right thing. Now, it's interesting. There's a, who is it going to give an, who are they going to give an account to? They are accountable, the church leaders in this text, as those who will have to give an account, not to me, but to the Lord. And what's the Lord going to say to them? Hey, did you lead the people like you should have? Did you do that in a good way? Did you lead them in the right things? Did you watch out for them the way that they, you should have? And, and this phrase at the end, no advantage to you. This goes back to those who are not the leaders, those who are submitting how do we submit to them? Is it in a way that it is a joyful task that they have? And this is something that I, I think about this. I don't know if often is the right word. I sometimes think about this. Obedience and submission do not have to be things that are groaning and, and sort of, oh, I have to do this in an ob obligation. This should and can be something that is joyful and something that is a, an advantage, right? And if we who are not submitting to them the way that we should, we are not going to get advantage. What advantage would that be? The advantage of the blessings of being in the church as God organized it to be. But we could go the other way, right? 1 Timothy 5.17 Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. The leaders are not exempt from this idea of accountability. Now, there is a specific amount of accountability, right? Except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Why? Because if I'm doing this, if we're doing this part, it's, very, it's not likely, but it's possible that somebody's not going to like to obey or submit, and so one person has an axe to grind, and so they make up some facetious charge against the leader. But there are times, though, when the leader does 
do the wrong thing, and in those cases, what? Rebuke them in the presence of all, those who, will, who persist in sin, those who will not change their behavior. Leadership, the church leadership, is accountable. We are accountable to them, they are accountable to God, and ultimately they are, we are accountable to each other. Why? The end result is we need to be doing the things that we're supposed to be doing. And if we're not, there should be some fear. Let the rest stand in fear. Oh, they got in trouble for doing the thing that they weren't supposed to do. I better not do the thing I'm not supposed to do. That's the idea that's present in this text. But this extends, of course, to the entire congregation, doesn't it? 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 15. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. What does that word admonish mean? If you go and look in your various dictionaries, I don't know if you have a Bible dictionary, uh, it is a rebuke. Now, it is a, a gentle rebuke, not a rebuke in the, in the severe sense, not a harsh thing, but it is a, hey, you're idle, you should not be idle, right? That's what that is. And what does idle mean? The idle, those who are idle in their Christianity, those who are just sort of resting on their laurels, they're not really doing any righteous things, they're just sort of lackadaisical Christians who are not really involved and not really doing what they're supposed to do. And when we see, this is because this text is directed at the church, we see the idol, what are we supposed to do? Hey, you should not be being idle. You should be doing something. We should admonish the idol. And we see some other things here. Encourage the faint-hearted. If I see someone who is faint-hearted, who is uh, weary in their Christianity, who is discouraged in their Christianity, what am I supposed to do? Encourage them. If I see someone who is weak, help those who are weak. But ultimately, of course, being patient with them all. If we see the faint-hearted, the idle, the weak, should we just mind our own business? No. Not according to this text, at least. It's not just a thing where you do your thing and I do my thing. That's not the way that it is. We are responsible for each other. And if I see that you're struggling in some way, the three specific ways here, I have a responsibility to do a specific thing for you. James 5, 16 through 20. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power and it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. What does the word confess imply about accountability? I'm not confessing to God in this text. I'm supposed to do that too. Because I'm accountable to God. So I confess to him, hey, I've done this thing wrong. But if I'm supposed to confess to one another, you, that implies that I am also accountable to you. That you, we, are responsible for making sure that all of us are doing the things that we're supposed to be doing. And if we're not... You have a, if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do, you have a responsibility to either admonish, help, or encourage. And I have a responsibility to confess, right? And why am I supposed to confess? That you may be healed. The idea of praying, and why I included the text about the praying here, 
It's not just, I confess my sins so that you can judge me. It's why. I confess my sins so that you can pray for me. That you can pray that this would uh, be a thing that I overcome. That you can pray that this would be a thing that I would be victorious over. This sin that I've committed, that I'm, I'm struggling with, that I'm trying to overcome. And then the thing about the prayer, what? The righteous prayer is effective. Why it's so important that I pray to you? Because if I, or if, I, if I confess to you, rather... Because if I don't confess to you, you do not know what to pray for. How can you? You can't. You can't possibly know because you don't know. James, uh, let's see. Oh, keep reading the rest of the text here. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from wondering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What's the alternative to bringing him back? Just let him do his thing, right? That's the alternative. Uh, I see you wandering away, and I'm not supposed to judge, and I'm, I'm not supposed to be in your business, and it's all your, your business is your business, and so I just let you wander away, and I don't do anything about it. What's not going to happen? Not going to come back. The soul will not be saved. Is that a desirable thing? That a soul will not be saved? I don't think so. But if we bring him back, the one who is wondering goes and attempts to find that person. And we just got done with a VBS on the parable of the lost sheep. Those, who, those sheep who wander away from the fold, what did the shepherd do? He went and sought them and tried to find that sheep as we are to do for our fellow brothers and sisters. The practical action does that entail? Well, you know what? I might have to go talk to that person. I might have to go talk to that person and ask, hey, why are you wandering away? What is, what's, what's going on? Is there anything I can do to help you come back? Is there a, a, a sin that you're struggling with? Is there a problem in the church that we need to address? Is, is something going on that I can help resolve? I might have to be uncomfortable and maybe approach some touchy subjects. Of course, the alternative is I just let that person wander away and not be returned. And that, I think, of course, is not righteous. What happens without accountability? Uh, there's a number of things, consequences, I should say, that arise when we have the attitude that you just do your thing and I'll do my thing and we're not accountable to one another. There's some practical consequences here. Ezekiel 3, 18 through 21. Uh, if I, the I here is the Lord, if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you, being Ezekiel, you give him no warning, no speak, nor speak the warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand, because you did not tell him. You were responsible for that. You knew the right thing. You knew the truth. You did not tell this person who was wicked, and you gave him no warning. So yes, he dies for his sin, but you are also responsible. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, not just the wicked person, but the righteous person. If a righteous person 
turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. We could easily apply this to the lost, the wicked who are not in a relationship with God. You need to tell them. But the second part of this more specifically addresses those who are in God's family. Now, in, in the context in Ezekiel 3, it was the nation of Israel, the righteous person doing what God wanted in Israel. For us, the righteous person would be who? The fellow Christian, right? The fellow Christian who commits an injustice. And if I just let them commit that injustice, no, I'm not going to address it. I'm not going to deal with it. That's uncomfortable. It's none of my business. Suddenly, I am culpable. God will require the blood at my hand. Because I did not do what God wanted me to do. I just let the righteous person die in their sin. The consequence for them will be great. And so will the consequence for me. Because I did not try to hold my fellow Christian accountable to what is righteous. So what happens when we don't have accountability? Even those who are not committing sin will be held responsible for the sins of the group. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. I really tried so hard not to use 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. And you'll see in the guided devotional that most of it is the, the 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians passages. Just want to read these first few verses at the beginning. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Fundamentally, the Corinthians were not holding each other accountable. And was Paul happy about that? Oh, sure, that's his business. Don't deal with that. No, he spends two chapters, and then two more chapters in 2 Corinthians, berating them for not doing this right thing and then telling them what they were supposed to do. And you're, you're supposed to read that this week in the guided devotional. Let him who has done this be removed. That's holding him accountable. You cannot commit this sin and be in our midst. What is that but accountability? But watching out for the wrongdoing of the church. And ultimately, we know, of course, what does he say in this verse in Ezekiel? I'll go back to Ezekiel. Uh, Warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life. That what's the point of this accountability? It's not so that we can feel superior. It's not so that we can enjoy judging people. Why, what is the point? To save each other's lives, souls. Because if I care about you and I love you, what am I going to do? I'm not going to let you be lost. I'm not going to let you do things that would separate you from God. If I love you the way that Jesus loves you, I am going to make sure that I am doing the best of my ability to ensure that you are in a relationship with God. And so if I see you committing a sin that separates you from God, or if I see you committing a sin that might separate others from God... 
what am I going to do? I'm going to speak up. I'm going to address it. I'm going to try to deal with it. I'm going to try to help because righteousness matters. Souls matter. The tolerance of sin is the opposite of accountability. We want, if we want to have a group that is not accountable to one another, then we are going to have to tolerate sin in the very specific way that Paul was mad at the Corinthians for doing. God wants us to hold each other accountable. So let's put it all together in Galatians 6. This passage, it was read for us. We're going to spend some time on this verse. Because this contains a lot of different elements that we've been talking about. Galatians 6, beginning in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let's start with this. If anyone is caught in any transgression, who does this apply to? Who, who is included in anyone? Does it include the elders? They're in anyone. Does it include you? Are you in anyone? Are you a part of the group anyone? Yeah, you are. So am I. Caught in any transgression. Now, what happens with a lot of sin? We commit the sin, we repent of the sin, we move on, and that's the end of it. This idea of being caught in any transgression is what? That I am committing a sin, that I'm not willing to change, that I'm just doing it, and I don't care about what anybody says, and I've been caught in this transgression, and I don't want... And, and myself, just left to my own devices, I have not changed. A lot of times we sin, and of our own accord, without the influence of anyone else, we repent and we move on. This is talking about those who are clearly not going to repent without the intervention of someone else, who have, are persisting in this thing. So what do we do? Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That word restore is very broad. What's involved in that? Well, at some point there probably needs to be some confessing. Uh, there needs to be some confrontation. Might not be serious, might be serious. There, it doesn't go into detail about this, right? Because it covers a broad range of things. That might be involved with trying to help person have some understanding, some teaching. Hey, this is why what you're doing is wrong. Maybe there's some teaching involved in restoration. Maybe there's some reconciliation. Hey, this transgression affected a relationship with you and somebody else, and, and how can I help that relationship be reconciled or restored? That might be a part of restoration. So this idea of restoring him, there's a lot of different elements to that that might come up in particular sins, whatever they happen to be. But what? Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Not arrogant. What did he say in 1 Corinthians 5? And you are arrogant. Don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. Don't be prideful. Oh, I'm so much better than you because I don't have the sin that you've committed. No, a spirit of gentleness. What can I do to help? How can I be a assistance to this? How can I aid you in this process of restoration? But then what? Bear one another's burdens. When you are in danger of being separated from God, it affects all of us. 
I should say this. It should affect all of us. Too often, what is the attitude? You do your thing, and I'll do my thing. That is unbiblical and unrighteous. It is an unrighteous attitude that I would just let you do your own thing, and I'm not going to worry about you, and I'm not going to care about you. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Attempt to help one another in our spiritual struggles, of which there are many, and our physical struggles. I don't think this text is talking about physical struggles, but there are others, many other texts that talk about that. We need to be helping one another, but what? As we do this, how many words are there in here that talk about our own selves? Keep watch on yourself. Let each one test his own work. Each will have to bear his own load. Why? Why is that so relevant? Why does he keep putting that, bringing that up? Yes, I'm supposed to keep watch over you, and I'm supposed to help you be righteous, and I'm supposed to keep you accountable. But you know what? If I'm not doing that for myself, what am I? I'm a hypocrite. That H word, right? And what does Jesus say when he talks in Matthew 7? Uh, first get the plank out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. Keep watching yourself because, and, and this ultimately goes back to the Ezekiel passage, right? Let's go back to the Ezekiel passage. Yes, the righteous and the unrighteous, the wicked and the righteous in this verse, they will bear the consequences of their own sin, won't they? They will. Regardless of what you did, if they were righteous or unrighteous, they get the consequence for that righteousness or unrighteousness. You, on the other hand, are also going to bear the consequences for your actions, whether or not you helped or did not help. So when we come back to Galatians 6 here, and we look at these verses, yes, I'm supposed to help you with your spiritual struggles. But ultimately, I'm not going to be punished for your iniquity. Unless I did what? Unless I did nothing. But I'm still not being punished for your iniquity. Whose iniquity am I being punished for? Mine, because I refuse to help you. So when it talks about each one will bear his own load, this idea of accountability doesn't suddenly mean that I'm going to be held responsible for all of your sin. I'm just not. But if I refuse to help you in that sin, to help you overcome that sin, that then becomes my own sin that I'm going to bear. That responsibility for my behavior and my actions. Yes, I'm supposed to help you. Yes, I'm supposed to keep you accountable. Yes, I'm supposed to strive to do what I can to restore you. But if you refuse to change, if you refuse to engage in that, if you refuse to repent, that's on you. It's not going to be on me. That's what this last part is, right? Each will bear his own load. So make sure that you are doing the right thing. Test yourself. And you know what a part of that test yourself is, that keeping watch on yourself is? If someone comes to you and wants to help restore you in a spirit of gentleness, how do you respond to that? Do you get defensive? Do you get arrogant? Do you get on the, on the defensive? Oh, how dare you say that to me? Or do you humbly think about, oh, maybe they are right about that. Maybe I am doing something I'm not supposed to do. Good news. You don't have to try to walk alone as a Christian. Are you thankful for that? I'm thankful for that. Maybe I'm the only one. Man, I, I just can't imagine trying to be a Christian by myself. That would be 
discouraging and hard and difficult. Some people, of course, in the world, we know, they have to do that, and it's very difficult, I'm sure, for them. But you don't have to, because you've got other people here, right? You have the help and comfort in God's people. And thanks be to God for that. The bad news, the news we may not want to hear, you can't isolate yourself from accountability and hope to maintain righteousness. You can't. It is not a part of God's plan that we all just mind our own business and don't engage with other Christians and help keep one another on the right path. So we want, and here's what happens, right? I want this, I want this part. I want to have the benefit of being in a church, but I don't want this part. You can't have it both ways. Either you accept the blessings that come with being in a church family and the accountability that goes along with that, or don't try to have the blessing. If you're not willing to accept the accountability part, you don't get to have the encouragement and the comfort. Those two things go hand in hand. They go together. We can't have one without the other. I am thankful for this congregation. I am thankful for this group of people. And I am thankful that God did not make me do this by myself. Amen. Praise be to God for that. Because if I was by myself, I'd probably fail. But I'm also thankful for the accountability, right? I'm thankful that there are people who love me enough to tell me when they are worried about my soul. I'm thankful for that. Because I need that, and you need that.